0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: <clears throat> okay, here we
0: go. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for October 4th, 2018, the All county Building Supply and Maintenance Edition. I am David Ploss of Atlas Obscura. That was the chuckling John Dickerson of CBS this morning. Thanks for the chuckle, John.
1: Oh, you b- brighten my day, David.
2: It <laughs> sounded so forced and sad. No. Uh, oh,
3: my
1: that, course, a, so <laughs> oh my God. What a negative interpretation. So obligatory. Oh uh, my God.
0: It was, it did feel also, it did feel for it. I agree with it. Oh my God. I
3: doesn't well, it doesn't mean it was. Yeah. Please. Uh, Called out
1: so on John my is in <laughs> Manhattan. <authentic> mirth.
3: <laughs>
0: so John is in Manhattan. I am in Brooklyn. Emily is in New Haven. So we have got, uh, A lot of New York and Connecticut covered, but not all of it. On this week's GabFest, the latest twists and turns in the Kavanaugh-Ford controversy, including Emily's very own small role in it. Then the amazing, exhaustive, stunning New York Times report about how Fred Trump handed over $400 million to his son Donald Trump and the phenomenal varieties of tax fraud they engaged in to do it. Then NAFTA is dead. Long live a smucka. Maybe, John, you, since you have to do TV, you know how to pronounce it. Yes, mucka. I don't think it's USMCA. USMCA. I think is the Charlie on the USMCA. Anyway, uh, we'll talk about that. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And before we go further, we have a conundrum live show. Always every year. One of our favorite things that we do is our conundrum show live in front of a extremely morally uh, confused and compromised audience that needs ethical help from us. And this year we're going to be at NYU Skirbel Center on December 12th. You can go to slate.com slash live to get tickets for it. This is the show where we will ask such questions as would you rather be a fish or a tree? Would you rather have feet as hands or hands as feet? Questions like that. So join us on December 12th at the Skirbel Center, slate.com slash live. And For a limited number of fans, there is a pre-show cocktail hour with us, so uh, you can get that. And that's a special treat for us to talk over even extra difficult conundrums before the show. As we tape on Thursday morning, the FBI investigation of Brett Kavanaugh is over. As we are taping, a parade of senders is going to the SCIF, the secure compartmentalized something facility. What is the term? Something like that. To see a single copy of the FBI report, they get limited time to review it. They're alternating Democrats and Republicans. Only senators and 10, I think, committee staffers are allowed to see this report. Mitch McConnell, John, correct me if I'm wrong, has scheduled a vote on cloture for Friday. Yeah. So for tomorrow. And he is looking to get Brett Kavanaugh pushed through to the Supreme Court as soon as possible. And we don't know as yet what has been found by the FBI, but the report seems to have been limited. From what we've heard, they interviewed I think half a dozen witnesses, although not Dr. Blasey Ford herself, and maybe not even Kavanaugh himself. We just don't know, so we're we're a little bit in the dark. We may learn as as we tape what came out in it. So, Emily, what what do you make of this limited report? If this limited report essentially says we cannot confirm what Dr. Blasey Ford said it's denied by several people who were there. uh, But the report seems to have been limited in its scope. Will that be satisfying? Will that be enough to get Kavanaugh confirmed? Which I guess is two different questions.
2: Yeah, two different questions. It could be enough to get Kavanaugh confirmed. I mean, presumably Senators Flake, Murkowski and Collins want to vote yes here. And so they could look at this report. And if it doesn't have, you know, some smoking gun piece of evidence that absolutely um, shows that Kavanaugh committed this assault, they could say that's good enough for them. I don't think that it will be a satisfying answer for people who doubt Kavanaugh's credibility and have kind of deeper questions about his veracity based on his testimony last week. And the FBI's disinterest in interviewing lots of people who wanted to talk to them about Kavanaugh's drinking in light of his claims about it. I think it's going to trail him and and sort of trail the court and bother some parts of the country. It's been really amazing. Maybe this is a silly thing to say because it's obvious, but it's been so polarizing, merely these questions of whether we should be looking into his history and whether his veracity on, you know, how he acted in high school and college matters. Yeah, I would have hoped there was like just more basic uh, consensus that um, truth telling is an important attribute for a judge. But, you know, with some notable exceptions, for the most part, conservatives have stuck with him and really dismissed the idea that all of this um, would be relevant.
0: John, you're one of the most fair minded people I know. And this is not me like blowing smoke up your ass. It's like I genuinely feel you to be one of the most fair minded people I know. What do you make of this effort to look at Kavanaugh in totality and look at his high school behavior, look at his planning for Beach Week party, look at the story that Emily uh, helped uncover about him throwing ice and starting a bar fight? Do you think that's fair game given the circumstances or do you think that's really ludicrous as some conservatives say that it doesn't doesn't pertain to the specific allegations mm. which have to do with the criminal sexual assault.
1: I I think it's fair game obviously if somebody's going to be a judge they should be telling the truth about things. Now, I think it's also possible to make the case that um For a Republican who is seeking to vote for him that on these questions, he said he had a few beers and that as a Republican making a decision, uh, my choice is that while I would have hoped to have been more forthcoming, that I'm balancing his entire judicial career against his answers in the in in a. Very uncomfortable, strange environment. After being accused for ten days of being, um, you know, a sexual assaulter and a gang rapist, this is. Um, I'm speaking, of course, in the in the voice of somebody who seeks to vote for him. But I think to not wrestle with it at all, uh, it goes back to Emily's point, which is that it leaves unaddressed what is clearly an issue, which is that he made a, a series of a series of contemporaneous characterizations about behavior that there's a, there's some evidence to suggest were, in real time, things that are not the case. And when he characterized all these different descriptions on his yearbook page, this isn't fuzzy memories about what happened in the past. This isn't trying to make him uh, not be a judge because of his drinking behavior in the past. But it's um, what kind of an assessment, fair-minded assessment can we make of these claims he made about things that he might, in his head, know to other – to be – Uh, Otherwise, than what he said out loud, Uh, that that's got That's kind of central to the question of of jurisprudence. Also, Um, you know, it's it's a shame that's not going to get discussed out loud. I'm not going all the way to saying that that means it's certain that he shouldn't be on the court, but to not have some kind of public conversation about that. Is bad because it embeds in his ultimate elevation to the court uh, a set of issues that are that are you know a part of the kind of job he's going to be holding.
0: Emily, we both John and I have mentioned these these ancillary bits of evidence about Kavanaugh that people want to bring forward. You were part of bringing some of it. For what are what are some of the bits of evidence that that people think maybe indicative of him having been misleading, having you know ha- had a, a more expansive drinking history that might pertain to to his general honesty and what what he might have experienced at uh, during the supposed assault of Dr. Blasey Ford.
2: Well, I think more people who knew him in high school and college have come forward to say that he was, you know, stumble drunk, that they saw him being totally out of it. And the reason I think they felt compelled to say all of that was he was saying there was no chance he could have committed this assault when he was blacking out. And they were saying that that just didn't match at all the memories they had of him. Um, And then there's some documentary evidence, like, you know, this letter he wrote about Beach Week, where he talked about, you know, warning the neighbors that they were going to be, that he and his friends were going to be obnoxious drunks. Um, And then there was this tip about a bar fight at um, a bar called Demery's in New Haven that I was asked to go um, chase down a police report for in New Haven. And, you know, it on its own, I don't think is, like, some huge uh, disqualifying thing, but it was interesting. I think part of it was, like, we were just glad to have a document um, showing that Kavanaugh was at Demery's, that he threw ice, you know, probably from his beer, but that wasn't in the report, so I don't know th- that he for put sure. Ice in and his beer friend and put, Chris Dudley. What?
0: That's the you cannot be confirmed to the court if you put ice in your beer.
2: What is
1: up with
0: that? <laughs> maybe
2: yeah, he was drinking not, something else, David. He was underage at the time. Let's not jump to conclusions. Um we don't well, know. Well, but what he if was he
1: drinking. was drinking
2: something else oh all right. Well, whatever. Uh, so then his friend Chris Dudley, who's been vouching for him a lot, it turns out was involved in this fight through a glass and hit someone in the ear who went to the hospital. And after the Times published the story about this police report, CNN confirmed that, in fact, Chris Dudley had been arrested. There's a redacted line in the report that I got from the New Haven police. Dudley was arrested, not Kavanaugh, not Dudley. So what does this tell us? I mean, on its own is an isolated incident, maybe not very much. It was a long time ago. But it's part of the sort of picture that's emerging of someone who spent a lot of time, you know, drinking in college in a kind of hard-drinking culture. Um, And, you know, it has this sort of edge in that particular night, at least, involving Dudley, of having gotten violent.
0: The president mocked Dr. Blasey Ford at a Mississippi rally this week. It was quite disgusting, and uh, I don't think anybody has really risen to defend him except people who are making the most preposterous case that he was merely stating the facts that all it was he was just outlining the facts uh jeff flake and lisa murkowski and susan collins have all disassociated themselves from those remarks and and condemned them john do you think uh that there is a base rallying effect that that trump is trying to get by doing that do you think there's do you think it, him doing that makes it uh makes this nomination more or less likely to to uh go through or to be endorsed by conservatives? It was such a st- odd, stupid thing for him to do.
1: It did seem like um it was against both the interest of his nominee and the interests of um his long term politics. Why create hurdles for flake Collins and Murkowski by re connecting this Narrative, Which has splintered in a lot of ways into individual questions by what doing what the president did is he reignite reintroduces this as a cultural moment in which we're talking about the treatment of women who come forward. And, uh, and so that seems to be to be a bad idea for those who would want judge Kavanaugh to go forward secondly. College-educated women are already enthusiastic about this campaign, but why give them another reason to be enthusiastic? However, as a base rallying move, the the reason this might have some benefit is, A, that we've seen in the polls some rallying on the Republican side around this notion of, um, you know, uh, as the president said, young men being falsely accused. And why does that matter? Well, if if your base is energized and thinks this is a witch hunt uh, to destroy the reputation of a good man by – Democrats, The sort of Lindsey Graham, Tom Cotton argument. Those base voters are going to put pressure on Murkowski and Collins. Flake, it doesn't matter because he's leaving. In fact, Flake in his, his interview on 60 Minutes said he never would have been able to push for the additional FBI investigation if if it had not been for the fact he wasn't running again. But the base pressure is not about rallying around the president. It's about putting pressure on Republicans in their home states to do uh, what the president wants them to do because those base voters, uh, you know, can potentially uh, support a primary opponent down the line. How
0: gruesome is that that Jeff Flake feels that the only thing that gives him liberty to take what seems to be just a moderately reasonable action to ensure that someone is qualified and not a sex criminal, that even that he he wouldn't. Have the courage to take, except for the fact that he's not running. That's a says something really demoralizing about the state of American politics. It says something truly deplorable about how bad things are that I mean, that senators are that that cowardly or that the fearful
1: of. And can kind of I just, just very quickly in there? It seems to me the two hurdles for Collins Flake and Murkowski is one is was there any evidence that was brought forward that's going to get in the way of your inclination to go and support Kavanaugh anyway? But the other one is. Was the FBI investigation sufficiently rigorous to meet the standards that you wanted? Did they do a real inquiry? And that, it seems to me, actually is the harder hurdle for them uh, than the other one.
2: Right. Because once you call for the investigation, you don't want it to be a sham, presumably. And yet, if it is inadequate and incomplete, do you really say so? Um, And I mean, that seems like a big test for them right now. I, David, I was thinking about something related to what you were just talking about. I keep... <laughs> I understand the politics of this at this point, and I think the way John laid them out is correct in terms of rallying the base. I keep thinking about the path not taken here, which was that weeks ago, you know, Kavanaugh could have quietly exited the stage, being told that he was supposed to say this is taking too much of a toll on my family, and the Republicans could have nominated someone else who would be just as conservative, just as reliable of conservative vote on the Supreme Court, but didn't have this kind of history and the turning away from that in some ways like more just more obvious option is is really interesting and i mean i also find it dismaying but i think like the idea that polarizing is always better as a political matter i mean this is uh, this is a development of the trump era that is really having it's really sustained it it really has legs this um this way of going about politics
0: although i i wouldn't characterize it as a development of the trump era trump is the the hardiest manifestation of it and the the titanic force in it but that form of polarization has been the character of american political life for 20 odd years like the idea that that power is from the base and from mobile rallying your partisans is rather than finding a, a a happy middle ground is the guiding principle of the last 25 years of american politics especially on the right although yeah, in
2: increasing I mean, fair, but do you, i guess the question is whether we're seeing a difference in degree or kind and yes i'm exaggerating by talking about it as a function of trump because certainly mitch mcconnell was a master of it before trump ever showed up and um yeah, I mean interesting whether an interesting discussion of like how it's developed over the last 25 years. I don't feel like I have the particulars of that now. But
1: down. I think you're but I think degree is what we're talking about here because yes, of course there's been partisanship and it's been increasing. But um but we certainly have not had a president who has been so focused on not even paying lip service to the idea of bipartisan compromise or reaching out to the other side or you know even partisan presidents in the past would nevertheless feel that it was a compulsory part of their job to talk about bipartisan solutions or even call up senators from the other side or have them over or schmooze as as Obama was constantly encouraged to do president trump just doesn't bother with that at all i mean completely do- just isn't part of his presidency so i think that is that that is that is new
0: the uh, two two more quick things one in addition to attacking Dr. Blasey Ford, there there was this extraordinary document released by the Judiciary Committee, uh, which made very nasty accusations against uh, one of the other Kavanaugh accusers, uh, Julie Swetnick. And her sexual past and her sexual behavior, and it was it was gross. It was disgusting. Now I totally understand that a lot of people think that Sweatnick's allegations against Kavanaugh are are vile and unsupported by evidence and and wildly thrown. But to have it uh, reversed on her was unsettling, to say the least. So, Emily, what did you make of that attack coming from the jud- Judiciary Committee, not just from the president, who we know the president we know is like incapable of self control around these things, but the committee? did this very directly.
2: Right. I mean, I think that this has just turned into like the ugliest down in the mud kind of politics. And I'm sure if you talk to the Republicans on the committee, they would say, look, these are wild allegations. She, you know, had no business making them. We don't trust Michael Avenatti, her lawyer. Like, this is a disgusting smear. And so that justifies whatever attack mode that we are going to go into. Um, There is like a real tit for tat in this world. But it is unsettling to see people attacked in this way. And, you know, I think on all sides, the temperature has risen so much that it just it, things like just spin out of control.
1: Now, why couldn't a Republican say this was not attack mode? It was an attempt to test the veracity of her claims against her standard pattern of behavior in the same way Democrats are seeking to test Uh, The claims made by Kavanaugh against a pattern of of his behavior and and in the distance between the two, the characterization and the reality, we get a sense of their credibility and therefore can measure whatever claim it is that they're making.
2: I mean, I think that is exactly what they would say. And then the question assessing for us is like, is it proportional? Is it? worded in a way that seems fair like is there are there any limits here to this discussion or are we in this world in which you know someone who comes forward and makes an accusation is opening him or herself up to just like really really um as david said sort of nasty set of responses i mean if you think of it as playing defense maybe you think that that is acceptable and okay i kind of mourn some like sense of restraint <laughs> the word civility is just so far from where we are right now um, and that seems like it's sad but I am I am sure that the Republicans feel like with all the things that liberals and Democrats have said about Kavanaugh that you know they're the last people who should complain. But I don't
1: mean it as a like you guys are hypocrites for calling us on this but I mean because um, one of the things that interests me here about the claims that are made about Democrats and how they're willfully trying to destroy a, a good man. um, you know that's a pretty extraordinary claim, which is to say that Democrats in seeking to get some wrestle some of these questions to the ground are deliberately trying to destroy someone. It seems to me there's another class, another area of behavior where you think these are legitimate questions uh, and you're trying to figure them all out, if for no other reason than to settle your mind and say he's innocent or say there's not enough evidence or whatever. But in the questions you're asking, you're, um, you know, they are uncomfortable because of the nature of what we're talking about here. And so they may have the secondary result of uh, damaging his public reputation, you know, uh, offending his family and giving them all kinds of unnecessary anguish. But it doesn't mean that you are willfully setting out to deliver them that anguish. So I'm just weathering, wondering whether the anguish is a byproduct of questions you want answered or whether that is your sole goal. Uh, and I think there's a Republican version of that, too.
2: Yeah, that's fair. Uh,
0: last thing, if you want, Emily, you got dragged into this yourself this week. You had a, a moment as, a, as a, a Twitter pinata for a lot of people. I just wonder what your thoughts are on you, you. You did some great reporting and uncovered some documentary evidence that Kavanaugh was involved in this bar fight for the Times, and you then had a byline on the story about it. And then all hell broke loose among certain corners of the of the internet. <laughs>
2: Indeed, I mean, look, you never, as a journalist, want to become the story, so that was like really uncomfortable for me and felt very unfortunate. And in some ways, it was really simple. I mean, the news desk had a tip. They asked me to run down a police report because I live in New Haven, and I did that. But I also write for the opinion section at The New York Times and were not supposed to cross those lines. I didn't really think about that in the moment, mostly because I sort of got excited. I love chasing stories. And I, I guess for me, what it comes down to is this. You know, if if I was asked to pick up that police report about any Supreme Court nominee, no matter how liberal or any public figure the New York Times is interested in, I would have done it with the same kind of glee and alacrity because I sort of have that reporter's impulse. And it is absolutely true that I have opinions and express those opinions as people know on this show. But I feel like having an opinions and being a fair reporter are two things I can do at the same time. So that is sort of where I land on this. Um, And to anyone who wrote any sort of nice support to me in email or Twitter this week, I deeply appreciate it. It was really no fun. Yeah.
0: I just want to say not that you need defending because you're such a excellent defender of yourself and there's the the charges against you are so ludicrous. But the notion that some people floated that oh Emily Bazelon is a is an opinion hack who all she does is is express her opinions and in, in the pages of the New York Times and she's not a reporter and therefore she's not qualified to pick to to touch the hem of this police report it's so insane you're such a great reporter you are a great reporter your job is reporting you the very week that you have this uh story in the Times about Kavanaugh you have reported a Masterful feature for the Times Magazine, a reported news feature about this move to have ex-felons get the right to vote back in Florida, and it just makes me crazy for people to to impugn you like that or or to to characterize you like that, and and you, it's just wrong, and so fuck all those people. <laughs>
2: Thank you. I mean, I do feel like, the bo- yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm a reporter in my bones. That's the thing I love to do the most, and I my opinions come from my reporting. But, um, yeah, let's leave it there. Thank you.
0: Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts, which is great. So you should go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member. And this week's bonus segment, it's going to be my theory that explains everything about why people are behaving badly in the world. I have a theory it's a very powerful theory, but only Slate Plus members are going to get to hear it. Uh, and <laughs> so go to slate.com slash Plus.
1: It's time for today's
2: Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com.
1: Available to players in the U.S.,
0: excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Speaking of the New York Times, one of the most ambitious pieces of journalism of this or really any year came out this week. A team at the New York Times has tracked down vast quantities of documents about the empire Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father, and used them to totally explode the myth propagated by Trump that he is a self-made person. The Times showed convincingly that Trump took about $400 million in today's dollars from his father, not the mere $1 million loan that he paid back that his is his own story. It has incredible details about what that money is and how that money came to Donald Trump. There's a $200,000 salary that he took when he was a toddler. There was a multi-decade, elaborate, fraudulent scheme by the Trump's father and children, but father and son in particular, to dodge taxes and to rob the U.S. Treasury and us fellow citizens of money that we needed to provide public services and support our military and build roads. Some of the highlights. um, He created, the Trump family created a business, the all-county building supply and maintenance company to sell things at a markup to buildings that uh, Fred Trump owned and then pocket the difference as profit for the children. He had buildings assessed at a tiny fraction of their value so that when Fred Trump died, they owed very few taxes on those buildings and then turned around and sold them for 16 times what they had been valued at in the in this bogus valuation. Uh, Fred Trump spent millions to bail out Donald Trump in an illegal way when when Donald Trump was having trouble at his casino. They engaged in just virtuoso tax fraud to forgive a huge loan that Fred Trump made him. And this story made me actually realize that that I have always thought of Donald Trump as a true kind of idiot, a true moron like who has a a great gift for public you know for public manipulation and for chaos that's true but that not actually never a great businessman but that's not that's not quite right he clearly has an a, amazing gift for tax fraud and for financial fraud at, of the highest order and he clearly also inherited that from his father so what john dickerson is important about this story what new did we learn did we learn anything new
1: well we learned uh, the it was a kind of pointillism, if I'm yeah, – art historians write in and tell me I'm using that wrong. But the individual specific details really laying out a picture that that we knew um, – not a difference in kind, but degrees. So we we knew from previous reporting that um, Fred Trump was very helpful to Donald Trump, that Donald Trump's fortune and d- way in life was was um, significantly aided by his father. And, but this puts that all in, in lots and lots more d- detail. I, one of the things that jumped out to me – and I should say the Times was quite careful uh, here and I thought what added to the weight of the piece – was was then explaining um, all of the other things that Donald Trump did that are particular to Donald Trump that explain his subsequent success in life, one of those things being favorable press coverage, including by The Times, which The Times wrote about. But then also Donald Trump's uh, salesmanship, his talent as a marketer. Um, his his own set of talents which are distinct from the leg up he was given by his father i think that's always when you have a to be sure paragraph i think it it always strengthens the the other work that you've done um but i one of the things that really jumped out at me that i thought was so interesting is the um and i guess i knew this but the just the the, the thorough way in which Donald Trump's father benefited from a wave of federal housing subsidies. And the reason this, of course, is important is that the fortune that then allowed Donald Trump to be was created really by the the hand in the market of the federal government. And so you have a president who's uh, boasting about his ability to remove regulations and all this meddlesome government behavior, but that the the meddlesome government behavior in the housing market is responsible for allowing Fred Trump to be um, to become the the smashing uh, success that he was.
2: Does that's it a matter? Great point. I had another um, feeling as I read this, which was just utter disbelief that it just seems like really rich people don't pay their taxes, if especially if they deal in real estate. Like that, there's just this world that is set up so that you can dodge your way out of enormous, um, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars of tax liability, whether you're doing it by set up setting up some special way of um, getting out of the estate tax, or as you were saying, David, like undervaluing your properties, like there's this there's whole industry that is set up for this. And the IRS seemed to be completely um, either disinterested or powerless to stop it. And it just made me think, like, this is distressing, but also there must be so much tax evasion and white-collar crime out there that we are not prosecuting. Like, (laughs) these people are living in a different universe than the one I live in.
1: Yeah, I think it's important that the Times pointed out the, the way in which the Trump organization departed from even the thorough tax um, chicanery that went on as a part of the code at that period of time. So there, there the argument the Times is making is, yes, people did all kinds of stuff to dodge. You know, I remember wealthy people who used to have lots of cattle farms because it was a way you could hide income. And I think at one point Goldman Sachs owned a bunch of cattle farms for this purpose. All of that is kind of, we know, and when the argument the Times is making, yes, but they went this extra further. mile. Yeah. Um, yeah,
2: yeah, Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Times used the word fraud in a way that um, they obviously, like, th- that was very carefully scrutinized, I'm sure, and thought about. It and it it seemed like they really had the documents to back it up.
0: There's this estimate, I think, in the piece, but also I've seen elsewhere, that $125 billion a year is shorted to the U.S. Treasury because of this kind of chicanery by rich people and, bus- and businesses. Um, and it's what is... So frustrating to me is that there's such a culture of attacking the IRS, such a culture of of deploring the the tax man that people are reluctant to understand that every time someone like Donald Trump or, or some company dodges taxes, they're robbing you. They're robbing me. They're making it harder for the government to do its job, to do the things that we want the government to do, to to fund schools or to pay Social Security or to. You know, support a military, and that is, and and they're making the burden fall disproportionately on those of us who don't cheat. And so the whole attack on the IRS is, to me, one of the worst things that the conservative movement has done. Because sure, cut taxes by all means. Like, if you think the tax rates are too high, go ahead, cut them. Cut corporate tax rates. That is fine. But when you encourage people to cheat, it is hideously destructive. Because it means that nobody has any trust in the institutions of government. It creates a culture of corruption and fraud. It means the worst people get to get the best outcomes. You know, if you don't prosecute tax cheats, if you uh, uh, turn a blind eye to tax cheats, the, the country suffers. And so my view is like. Let's if you believe in lower taxes, that is okay. but believe in lower taxes with a strong enforcement mechanism so that people pay fairly because this unfairness just boils my boils my blood. It boils my blood. And I feel like if people don't get outraged when they read things like this, if they don't get outraged at a kid getting a two hundred thousand dollar salary for being a landlord, then they're really dreadfully missing something. I, I feel like this is of all the things that I have read about Trump in, in recent months, this is one of the ones that really made me the angriest because it it is such a direct attack on the country and on the rest of us who are trying to do our part.
2: John, do you think it will have political ramifications?
0: No. No,
1: I don't. I don't think so. I do think um, I am just reminded by uh, there will be some great, um, really amazing piece of of work uh, um piece of of scholarship that will be written about Fred Trump Donald Trump and this American you know period of 100 years um you know that'll come out in 10 years and it'll be just amazing because the the father is his own amazing character and um and the way in which this, the the choices of the father are in, are implanted in the son and then the son in his children a lot to work with there, but but politically, no. I think this doesn't doesn't matter now. It could matter because
0: the but New York Department. But why? 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 Sorry, John. Sorry to yell and interrupt. Well, why? Because think well, of the base. Why don't people? This is not a partisan issue. This is like the the David, the, the president has used like. <laughs> But, but they, this is example this, number I mean,
1: there have been other issues where it shouldn't have been a, a partisan issue and people have not uh, moved out of their um out of their various I know, camps. I people, do think that the I New York know, is, know, this is now being looked hate into tax cheats. This is now Maybe being looked into by I mean one way it may actually matter is that the New York part what is it, the New York State Department of Taxation and Finance is reviewing the allegations. Now I don't know whether that's actually means anything in the end of the day um i do think though it is a i suppose if democrats take control of one or both houses of congress and they want to look into the president's tax returns this could be part of a fact pattern that argues that from almost literally from the cradle he was a part of a of a series of manipulations including creating what was it like 256 different kinds of entities to hide income what what really struck me is what i felt was true when we learned about or got an insight into the kind of relationship he had with his personal lawyer michael cohen was that this the president as a private citizen was habitually in the in the habit of finding ways to skirt the laws in fact he boasted about it during his campaign and that if you're in that kind of um if that has been your pattern for your entire life those tax returns that we've never been able to see surely will include some behavior that that got so close to the line as to perhaps cross it if the Times piece is right.
0: This is an odd point. One of the things this story made me think was actually maybe we shouldn't have estate taxes, that the lengths that people will go to to dodge the tax that they'd have to pay to give their fortune to their children – Is so extensive that people are so willing to make any kind of moral and ethical compromise in order to pass on their wealth to their children, that attempting to stop it is always going to be a fool's game. And that maybe what we need to do instead is find taxing at the front end, like find ways to tax people before that process hits, so that you making sure you have, you know, better collection of income taxes and better corporate tax collection and not worry so much about the estate tax because the estate tax just causes people to want to cheat at a vast scale. And therefore-
2: That's a really interesting idea that it's sort of taking, conceding the psychology of the estate tax and then just finding other ways that people don't, Notice that
1: is Yeah, well you're Dick Armey now. That I mean that's been a long time Republican argument for well for, except they uh, cop- for getting rid of it.
2: Well, but David wants to replace it. Dick Armey probably just wanted to get rid of it, right?
1: Well, right, but my point is that all the all the behavior and and craziness that happens as a result of trying to avoid the estate tax has its own big cost that that would be good to get rid of.
0: Yes, that's right. I, I do think I although I would much as i love dick army i don't think that dick army dick army didn't want a stronger irs he didn't want higher income taxes he didn't want you know higher sin taxes or whatever the other ones things that i would endorse are but yeah i i never thought it never occurred to me i've always i because i think passing on inherited wealth is is a huge bane but people have a very very strong inbuilt need to do it and they will go to almost any end to do it and the number of people who don't like the number of people who are truly well wealthy who will not pass on their wealth to their children is is an infinitesimally small number of people. And so um, so let's, maybe let's not try to, yeah, let's, let's not try to t- tax there, but tax elsewhere. Um, let, a couple other questions about this. Um, Emily, John mentioned the tax returns. And one of the other things that came out this week, which I didn't know about, is that there seems to be some law, some old early 20th century law that will allow the House Ways and Means Committee majority to look at Donald Trump's tax returns just they get to ask for them if they want to they can ask for anyone's tax returns did you know about that law and and uh, do you think democrats would be I
2: sure didn't yeah <laughs> i know it's like one to dust off the shelves i suppose um yeah i don't really know anything else about it than what you said but it will be really interesting to see if that succeeds, if the president tries to challenge it, um, how clear the statute is, if there's like some other thing that um, will stand in the way. But that was an interesting, de- I mean, development is the wrong word, an interesting um, discovery this week.
0: Do you think it matters, John? I know you've said it doesn't matter politically, but this, this part of the narrative of the Time story is, you know, Trump has said he's a self-made man. He's not a self-made man. Do you think that sticks with people, setting aside whatever the tax fraud is?
1: No, because of all the ways that he's self-made, all these other ways that he's self-made, his father didn't have anything to do with. I mean, he's... Um, when you talk to President Trump's friends, they say he's not a builder. He's a marketer. And all that stuff, he couldn't have done without, without having the leg up. You can't, you know, um, present yourself as a world-beater uh, unless you're driving around in the car and have all the trappings of wealth. Um, but that his... Um, you know, there's enough that he did on his own that anybody who wants to uh, be a fan of his for what he's been able to create himself uh, has have plenty of things to ha- hang their feelings on. When you think of other reasons and ways that it that it matters in the larger political con- uh, context, is we one of the big challenges in America throughout its history, and and one of the big things that was. Reset in the depression in the Great Depression was you had a group of people who, through uh, their accountants and their lawyers and their um, highly paid business colleagues, were able to circumvent and arrange the laws to benefit them and their families and you know FDR jumped in there and did a lot of things to try to rebalance that and create a safety net and and try to help people who didn't have all the means to protect and pad their own wealth. So that was a huge moment in American history. Well, we are with um, the inequalities in America, in the American system now. It's one that any Democrat or Republican president and administration would seek to rebalance because it's gotten so uh, – gotten out of whack in terms of where the prosperity and the culture gets um, funneled. And if you want to make an argument that a, that a president who hasn't been really focused on that issue other than wanting to have – I mean his argument is if the economy does well, everybody does well. But who hasn't really tried to to rebalance? You could imagine that if this was this pattern of behavior was the one in which he was weaned, he has benefited so thoroughly from the management of the system. The system is bad, so you try and game it, and um, that's the natural order of things. If you think that's the natural order of things, I don't know how much how interested you are going to you're going to be in trying to change it.
3: and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary, Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's june thirteenth at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at Tribecafilm.com/slash slowburn. Hope to see you there.
0: The president had a trade victory this week. The president announced that he would be replacing NAFTA with the USMCA, a new trade agreement, new name. It looks very similar. But in any case, the president and his trade negotiators have come to an agreement with the Mexican and Canadian governments for a tripartite trade deal to to uh, continue the friendly relationship that we've had on trade over the past 20 odd years. But it isn't NAFTA. The president has always said he hated NAFTA. NAFTA is terrible. It's the worst deal ever. And now he's negotiated a new deal with these countries, after a lot of Michigas, after a lot of tension. It has a, a few changes. It has um, a requirement that more of a car need to, needs to be made in North America to to benefit from its uh, the beneficial trade rules. It requires more of a car to be made by people making a decent wage, which is going to either push up wages in Mexico or cause car manufacturing to go elsewhere or cause uh, more manufacturing to take place in the U.S., there was a some breaking of the canadian dairy limits that the president has has uh importuned against their uh extension of terrible us copyright regulations to more parts of the country and more uh, more parts of the world and more uh extensive uh extension of copyright in ways that i deplore uh so there's a bunch of a bunch of changes uh, the, not so many changes in how disputes between the countries are going to be regulated but president trump triumphantly proclaimed this as a victory and that he's gotten rid of nafta. so john has he gotten rid of nafta is this the, is this a a new day in trade?
1: well i, I mean the, i'll give you the dumb answer first which is yeah it's a new day in trade. i mean he's got a new thing he had a set of negotiations that took place over a long period of time and he's he's massaged and punched and worked and and um and uh negotiated with these two partners and there's more to go still there's still the question of the steel tariffs and and other areas where so he's trying to reset the negotiating field um on his terms and so that all has that all has happened um you know does i guess the question you're asking is really is this new thing so much better than what would have been there by itself and i talked to a former administration official who basically said um it's it's the NAFTA we had plus some stuff from TPP, which is the trade um, deal with Asia that had some of the provisions that are now in this new agreement, which is a trade um, negotiations that started under the or were going or ongoing under the Obama administration that President Trump got out of. So the the our, the argument of critics is this was a lot of negotiating and political angst that didn't really set the terms for negotiation, just was a lot of extra added effort to get you to a place that you were pretty close to getting before all of this happened. Congress is gonna to have to is gonna to have to vote on this and the devil's in the details and a lot of the details aren't available at the moment. But I was interested for the president who has talked about wanting to drive down drug costs, that there are provisions in here which make it Harder for Canadian drug manufacturers to compete. The president mentioned that in his um, remarks heralding the deal. He said, we want our drugs to be made here. When you talk prescription drugs, we don't like getting them from from foreign countries. Well, Canadian pharmaceuticals are not like being made up in the back of a truck and – this makes puts American drug manufacturers in a stronger position. So in that sense, it's very America first. These companies, American drug companies, are going to have a, a stronger hold on the market. But that means price flexibility that comes from competition with Canadian drug manufacturers doesn't exist. So how is that going to drive down drug prices, which the president says are so awful? Um, so I, I think we, we're going to have to really shake this deal out and see –
2: I don't mean to be laughing. I think you guys are doing a great job of dissecting this. It just, it, it's, it seems at this point, there's so much declaring a victory that it, getting into the actual substance of it is sort of a relief to just be thinking about. Like, what are the trade implications? What do we know and not know as opposed to the grand marketing strategy where you put a new name on something and it's transformed?
0: The most persuasive point I read about this had less to do with the specifics in the policy. And no doubt I'm about to butcher this because I have not read the agreement, so so asterisks here. But the that one of the things that this deal does is introduce an element of uncertainty in the relationship because it can be re-reviewed every six years, I think, and then it expires fairly soon, maybe in 16 years. There's definitely this process of review that's going to take place pretty quickly. And that is not great. People need, in order to, to get their supply chains going, to build their factories, to make Plans. They need a sense like, OK, here's what the rules are going to be over a relatively long period of time. And that's why we can afford to make massive capital investments. And to make this agreement kind of tentative and reviewable after several, just a handful of years is something that's going to introduce an element of uncertainty into the relationship that we haven't really had. Yes, there is this problem in trade that, you know, the U.S. has lost certain kinds of manufacturing jobs to Mexico and also other parts of the world, and that there's been this significant migration of people from Mexico into the United States, and some of that's illegal, and that's caused, you know, certainly political tension. But one of the things people forget is that Mexico, the Mexican-U.S. relationship has improved so significantly in the past 25 years. Yeah, there's, of course, drug war and death and these immigration problems. But in general, Mexico is no longer aligned with the global South. Mexico is aligned as part of this North America. It has problems much more of a developed country than it does of a developing country. It's not like Guatemala or Honduras. And and part of that is because of the certainty that NAFTA has brought to the Mexican economy. And we don't want to lose that. We don't want Mexico to become unsteady and an uncertain ally that is not a desire that Americans should have as much as they may be worried about immigration. Um, So that part of this deal makes me troubled. John, does the president deserve uh, the credit that he is claiming? Is this, is this a victory, but his bluff and bluff and bullying?
1: I mean, to the extent that he got the two other uh, countries to agree to a deal, it's a victory. The question is whether it was worth the cost. And um, also we should think of it, not just in terms of Canada and, and, Mexico, but his entire trade um, adventure he's on. So all of this bluff and bluster and threatening and all of that, plus the back end compliments he then gave to Justin Trudeau with whom he's had some uh, public spats. um, You know, does he show that he's somebody who can be worked with? But who wants a better deal on some things for, uh, for America? What do the Chinese take away from this? The Chinese this week, in fact, reduced tariffs on textile products and metals, and um, uh, uh, you know some percentage, not all the way, but down from like twelve percent to eight percent or something. He's getting some results, but the what I am incapable of doing, but which there's plenty of skepticism from people involved in trade, including somebody who was inside the administration working on these issues, is that it just isn't worth all of the cost. But, what, but how do you calculate the cost? The president is clearly getting a, a political benefit from his, um, from his base, which helps him personally and then also helps him thoroughly control the Republican Party, which, when you, which, which he is in complete control of. Because he's able to say to his constituency, I, "Look at me! I'm out there fighting. I got you a better NAFTA. I'm fighting the Chinese on these trade issues, um, and that's something he campaigned on, and that they care about."
2: So, what is the cost, John? I mean, do we? Is it? Is it intangible? Is it longer term? Like. It it seems like it gets a little hard to measure in these um, calculations.
1: I guess there are a couple of different kinds of costs. One is the time that was wasted that could have been spent negotiating other things. Um, uh, The time that is wasted by by ripping up an emerging trade deal with non-Chinese countries in Asia that were a way to pin down the Chinese – um, this is what was going on under the Obama administration, perhaps not a perfect deal but one that could have been worked with um, in order to not only improve relations with uh, – trade relations with those countries but also use economic power to pin the, the Chinese in and that by ripping it up, um, you now have to kind of start from scratch. You allow the Chinese to make deals with those countries and move into an economic relationship that creates ties that, are, that put it – And those countries in alliance against the United States a little bit. It's just that there was a lot of stuff on the trade agenda anyway. And so spending all this time kind of recreating what was already there, and I'm speaking in blunt terms here, but, you know, it spends a lot of capital. There are other Republicans and conservatives who would say, you know, the idea that free trade is a benefit over the course of an economy which has disruptive effects. But for a disrupting president, that should be okay. to recognize that sometimes there's a benefit to disruption that might ruffle people's feathers and disrupt their lives a little bit. But that in the end of the day, the um, ends justify the means. But nonetheless, conservatives and people who believe in free trade would say that he has used and set up this idea that free free trade is – is this awful thing, and that that has that has an accumulated uh, downside. So I guess those would be some of the um, the possible downsides of this. I haven't read the agreement, and it would take me a, a while to interview people to get to figure it out. But there, I'm sure there are other things in the details that are uh, that would make it easier to make a an analysis just based on pre NAFTA post NAFTA. Did they get a much better deal here?
0: Let's go to cocktail chatter. My friend, who I was staying with last night, made me. A martini before dinner a very dirty martini Mm -hmm. oh my god i i think that is the perfect drink is to have a martini before dinner there's just no reason to drink anything else it's so delicious and i wish that you guys had been there i was extremely chattery i just my i became incredibly garrulous because i got very quickly buzzed so uh, i would love to chatter over martinis with you guys but since we can't let's just chatter electronically emily what is your chatter
2: That does sound so pleasant. My chatter is about Jason Kander, who is a politician in Missouri who came on the show when we had our live show in St. Louis. And in a, I thought, very moving statement this week, pulled out of the race for mayor of Kansas City in Missouri because he is suffering from depression and I think some suicidal thoughts related to his service in the military. And what I really respected in this statement was just like the level of honesty in it. I mean, Jason had written previously in his book that he felt lucky that he did not suffer from PTSD, but he said in a statement that, you know, on some deep level, that just wasn't true and that he was trying to bury it and hide it and go on with his political career, but he felt like he had to step out of politics to deal with this and, you know, heal himself. So, um, you know... I wish him well, but I also just want to commend him for being honest about this, you know, huge problem that people in the military and lots of other people grapple with. And so to have someone on the public stage who's willing to be so candid about it and even say that he denied it previously, but that now he was like coming to grips with it, um, I thought was really interesting and um, admirable.
0: Wow. I had not heard that. That is that's sad. And I but I man i share your admiration i wish him
2: yeah totally
0: i wish him a quick or i don't know i wish him a great experience of recovery dude yeah wow wow uh, john what is your chatter
3: yeah
1: i actually i interviewed jason for uh our cbs this morning podcast uh about a month ago about his new book um interrupted him while he was in on the campaign trail um running for mayor so um I too was uh, had him much of my thoughts this week as he was um, trying to trying to deal with that challenge. Um, so my chatter is about something I basically don't really completely understand, but it captured my imagination, and therefore I will throw it out for consideration. Which is that astronomers have pointed their telescopes beyond Pluto, to the outer fringes of our solar system, and three
0: uh, uh, or astronomers all work. I'm making sound effects for you.
1: Okay. A a trio of astronomers have discovered a tiny little dwarf planet, which seems to me to be um, redundant if it's a tiny dwarf planet, but I'm sure there's a specific reason it's a tiny dwarf planet. So as opposed to just simply a dwarf planet, which would give you some uh, indication of its diminutive stature. But anyway, the important thing about the dwarf planet is that its funky path around the sun suggests that there is a larger as yet undiscovered object – Lurking farther out there, so the big f- honkin' object that might be lingering out there is the so-called Planet X, which they've been, which astronomers have been looking for for some time. And there is this theory that Planet X, aka Planet Nine, is the hypothetical super Earth, um, and that the super Earth would be, um, you know. Uh, like a big, just a big earth. And so the picture in the USA Today piece that I read about it and it started me down this wonky road, wonky not in terms of being policy-oriented, but wonky in terms of my incomplete understanding, is just, you know, the, it, I was seized in the cab or wherever when I was reading this story about the idea that there is, the you know, a gargantuan earth at the very edge of our solar system on which people are having like a really long alternative earth slate podcast. <laughs> um, anyway, so it goes on uh, I'm forever
2: just, and ever. We just never yeah, stop talking.
1: It never stops talking about about <laughs> a like planet discovered times. on the That's other most end. Shows feel like honestly, <laughs> yes.
2: it's like and John's this chatter. cocktail chatter, but really just extended into into time forever. <laughs> this
1: chatter is in fact Wait, becoming how can, f- how can there X. be? A,
0: how could there possibly be an Earth-like planet that far out? There, it wouldn't get enough solar radiation. Well, I don't know. This, know. this is what they solar energy. This That's is what they're
1: searching for. Well, I'm sorry. You you take it up with people who are out there, uh, you know, checking out um, this newfound world previously named to in uh, name 2015 TG387.
0: I'm not saying there couldn't be a big planetoid out there. I'm just saying it, it would not have uh, California and sunshine and and, uh, you know, streams gently rip wrapping streams running through it. That's not going to be happening. It Would be an icy, cold, and dark place,
1: uh, much like Twitter.
0: <laughs>
2: Seriously,
0: <laughs> we found the planet is named Twitter. Um, okay, my chatter, <laughs> my chatter is uh, a wonderful book that I read. I heard about it actually on the Slate Money podcast called Billion Dollar Whale the man who fooled Wall Street Hollywood and the world it's by Tom Wright and Bradley Hope who are two Wall Street Journal reporters and it is a rip roaring absolutely delightful account of one of the biggest financial cons in the history of the world if you liked for example Bad Blood the other great business book I read this year you might well enjoy billion dollar whale it is a story of Joe Lowe who is a Malaysian young man who ended up getting a degree at Wharton not unlike our president and had similar talents for for chicanery and marketing and then proceeded over the course of much of the past decade to scam, not exactly scam because they were complicit and they made lots of money, but scam lots of people in Abu Dhabi, in Saudi Arabia, uh, shady Swiss bankers and notably Malaysian politicians, including the, the former prime minister of Malaysia to get uh, them to hand over to him or hand over to to an investment arm billions of dollars of Malaysian money which which Joe Lowe then just stole he just like completely walked off with he gave he he stole it by in part by giving a lot of it the money he stole to other people who were in on the con including the Malaysian prime minister and the Malaysian prime minister's wife but Lowe ended up stealing hundreds of millions or billions of dollars just for himself and he spent it on yachts and parties and there are incredible details about the diamonds he bought for Miranda Kerr, the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars of fees that he paid to Paris Hilton to basically to hang out with him. The millions and millions of dollars he gave to Leonardo DiCaprio to make various movies and gave millions, millions and millions of dollars of art to Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, Alicia Keys was always hanging out with him. It's an incredible story of a, of a con artist at the height of his game. So check out Billion Dollar Whale. And we have a listener chatter, of course. May
1: I jump in here and and associate myself with your endorsement of Mining the Gap, which is the um, the great documentary you talked about several weeks ago, which I watched on the train back from D.C. on Sunday. And it was so transporting. I just – it's fantastic. And you're right. it has It's about skateboarding, but it's not really about skateboarding. Yeah.
2: I feel so left out. I tried to watch it, but I can only watch it on my laptop, not on the television screen, and I just haven't done it yet.
0: Well, you should definitely watch it. It's great. Uh, Also, we have a listener chatter. You, dear listeners, keep sending us great, excellent chatter. So you keep keep that up by tweeting at us at at SlateGabFest. And uh, this week, our chatter comes from Gretchen Falk at FGRO1. And she says, this week and for many weeks to come, I'll be chattering about Money Rock, a new book by a former Charlotte Observer reporter that uses the story of a famous drug dealer from the 80s to paint a portrait of the New South. And this is a young man who grew up in Charlotte who dubbed himself Money Rock and became a massively successful drug dealer in North Carolina and it's um it looks like a great book. I haven't read it but followed a little bit of what Gretchen was saying and it looks great. So check it out. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabfest and tweet chatter at us. And uh you should also get ready for our conundrum live show. So go to Slate.com slash live to come to our December 12th live show in New York. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, i David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week.